The key problem for British diplomats in the years before 1914 was Russia. Russian expansion to the east was threatening British trade routes to India and the newly discovered oil for the Royal Navy in Persia. Somehow the Russians had to be bought off or bullied back. The British could have made common cause with the Germans, who also very much feared growing Russian power. But there was an influential anti-German lobby in the British right-wing press and in the foreign and war offices. Without any evidence at all, they loudly and quite seriously protested that the Germans were plotting to take over Britain and her empire. It was nonsense, but it led the Foreign Secretary Edward Grey to make secret military and naval commitments to France, which was Russia's ally. Partly, they were meant to contain this imaginary German threat. Partly, Grey hoped, they would buy the Russians off. By 1914, this round-the-houses long shot of an unlikely policy was of course getting nowhere. The Russians had gone on expanding in the east, in Persia and towards the borders of India. And then, in 1914, the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was killed by Serbian terrorists. It opened up the real danger of a war in the Balkans, in which the Russians would seize more territory. What on earth should the British do? If they backed the French and Russians now, it would start a general war. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. On the 28th of June 1914, the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Bosnia by Serbian terrorists. It was, in itself, a tragic but minor incident. However, in the heady volatility of 1914, it was a catastrophe. Ask any ten people who've heard of the First World War, and nine of them are likely to tell you that it was caused by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. But of course, there are always innumerable layers of cause, concentric circles and chains of factors and events, and personalities that collide to create a moment. The assassination is the textbook example of one cause among many. Franz Ferdinand's death and that of his wife exploded into the most complex of situations, some of which we've been sketching, if only from the way they were seen in Britain. In the wake of the killing, Austria would almost certainly seize the opportunity to take action against Serbia and attempt to expand its influence in the old Turkish Empire. It would also use this opportunity to damp down separatist stirrings among the many Balkan minorities within its own borders. But that would present the Russians not only with the opportunity, but also with the necessity to move south and seize Balkan territory for themselves. I mean, Austria couldn't be allowed to seize this whole region for itself. If the Russians mobilised, then the Germans, long terrified of the threat to their own security from an expanding Russia, would inevitably back the Austrians. Since the French were militarily committed to the Russians, they too would almost certainly be drawn in, and might conceivably take advantage of an Eastern European war to seize back Alsace and Lorraine, which they'd lost to the Germans in 1870. German war planners, afraid above all of facing France and Russia at the same time, 
believed that a preemptive German strike against France through Belgium could be their only slim chance of survival. So a general European conflict would break out. It could all be avoided if the Austrians were persuaded to protest at the assassination but take no further action. British diplomats flattered themselves that the British held the key to this situation. Well, in fact, to an extent they did. Diplomats across the continent anxiously discussed what the British would do. If the British decided to support the French, then the Germans would almost inevitably feel that they had to make that preemptive strike through Belgium for fear of a French attack. But if the British remained neutral, then the French might decide to do nothing. And that, in turn, would probably give the Russians second thoughts also. It would then be down to persuading the Austrians to be reasonable, and without German support, they almost certainly would. Now, as we saw in our first discussion on this subject, the British weren't obliged to support either side. Whatever we all learnt at school about the Triple Entente, no such thing existed in law, and Britain had signed no alliances or military agreements with anyone. Even the much-talked-about treaty to defend Belgium was in fact a dead letter. As for Britain's own safety, the best contemporary analysis was that it was completely secure, protected by what was then the best navy in the world. Whatever we were taught at school about an escalating Anglo-German naval race, at the time, the British Royal Navy was extremely relaxed about its effortless superiority. In fact, at the end of June 1914, just a few weeks before war eventually broke out, the British Royal Navy was enjoying a summer regatta as guests of the German Kaiser. A large British fleet had sailed over to Kiel to join up with the Kaiser's navy. For six days, their sailors had competed at tug-of-war, shooting and running, all of which Germany won. Oh, and football, a draw. A German sailor who was there remembered British sailors flirting with the German women and taking free train trips to Berlin. The Kaiser entertained senior British and German officers aboard his imperial yacht. Although the Germans refused to allow British sailors aboard their up-to-date ships for security reasons, the British had such enormous and justified confidence in their naval superiority that they allowed the Germans to scramble almost all over theirs and happily discussed all the technical details. Everyone's spirits were dampened by the assassination of the Kaiser's hunting pal, Franz Ferdinand. But as the British steamed away two days later, on the 30th of June 1914, the British commander, Sir George Warrender, signalled the German fleets. His words were these, friends in past and friends forever. Whatever the anti-German civil servants were saying, and whatever Winston Churchill, the politician in charge of the British Navy, may have thought, nobody actually serving aboard the British or German warships in June 1914 seems to have had the slightest idea that war was about to break out between them. The Germans and the British historically had a great deal in common, and they certainly now had a great deal to gain by working together. Back in London, the Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey's response to the news of the assassination of the Archduke on the 28th of June was not as British popular tradition might have imagined. He didn't instruct his diplomats to investigate German intentions. No. Instead, a week later, we said he was lazy, on the 8th of July 1914, he finally got round to commissioning a report on Anglo-Russian relations. As we've said before, Whatever generations of schoolchildren have been taught, 
And whatever the anti-Germans at the Foreign Office may have argued, British foreign policy in 1914 hinged not on Germany, but on the best way to contain Russian ambitions in the East. The report landed on Gray's desk on the 21st of July. It rehearsed the obvious problems. There was the Royal Navy's Persian oil to protect. Disturbingly, there were Russian monks in Tibet, probably military advisers, in fact. There were Russian farmers in China and Russian soldiers on the borders of India. And the Russians were once again demanding more of a say in Afghanistan. India looked indefensible against this looming Russian presence. But the report failed to consider the obvious solution. If the British recruited German backing to force an Austrian climb down over the Balkans, it would defuse the immediate problem. And in the longer term, it would send a signal to the Russians that the British had had enough of their creeping expansion in the East. Instead, the report that landed on Gray's desk had the finger marks of Air Crow and the other anti-German civil servants at the Foreign Office all over it. With hindsight, their conclusion almost beggars belief. They argued that Britain's only option was to try to buy the Russians off by supporting them, or in actual practice by supporting their French allies, against Germany in what they calmly accepted would definitely, inevitably, become a general European war. Foreign Secretary Edward Gray's response to the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was to commission a report on the Russian problem in Persia. For the British, this was the key to foreign policy, the one consideration that would determine its position in the urgent crisis facing Europe. When it came back, the report, clearly written by anti-German civil servants, recommended supporting the French against the Germans, even though that would inevitably mean a general European war. Since the French were allied to the Russians, this was supposed to be a way to buy the Russians off. For their part, the Russians understood perfectly well what was at stake for the British, and they were quite happy to use blackmail. On the 25th of July 1914, the British ambassador to St Petersburg, George Buchanan, was summoned and informed that the Russians would not accept a British declaration of neutrality in the present crisis. For months, the Russians had been informing Buchanan that unless Britain supported Russia against Germany, the Russians would feel completely free to disregard anything in the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907, which they were already ignoring anyway. Now, 25th of July 1914, in a telegram to London, Buchanan said that the British, quotes, had to choose between giving Russia our active support or renouncing her friendship. Well, if that happened, he added, Britain would, quotes, be faced with a situation where our very existence as an empire will be at stake. What Buchanan meant was that the Russians would feel free to attack India, or at the very least, cut the British overland communications with her. Well, it was plainly a piece of diplomatic blackmail, but there was no reason for the British to give in to it. Colonial Secretary Lulu Harcourt had long and urgently pointed out to the Foreign Secretary Gray that Britain was under no obligation at all to back Russia or France in the war. The large majority of cabinet ministers agreed. The Russians were much more afraid of the Germans on their western border than of anything the British could do in the Middle East. The Brits could very viably now call the Russians bluff 
and back the Germans instead. In fact, the British had very little to lose. The Russians had broken all the agreements they'd signed with the British in the past. But Gray rejected the German option out of hand. He'd been persuaded by his anti-German foreign office mandarins that the Germans were bent on world domination, taking over the whole British Empire for themselves. He also knew that the British army had covertly made an agreement with the French to go to war with them against the Germans. He also knew that Winston Churchill, first Lord of the Admiralty, had made an identical, also unauthorised, agreement with the French Navy. So he'd left himself no option. He'd have to throw in his hand with the Russians and the French. Instead of trying to defuse the emergency over Serbia, the British would put their weight behind the French and Russians and tip the Balkan crisis into a general European war, deliberately. However, there were still plenty of possible further twists to the story before the British army would embark for France. Gray's civil servants hadn't left him any choice about whether to support the Russians in the crisis over Serbia, but he would still have to persuade cabinet, parliament and the public, all of whom had long been bitterly opposed to supporting what was seen as the uncivilised, untrustworthy and expansionist Russians, let alone precipitating a European war. And Gray would have to decide in what way Britain would support the Russians and the French. For centuries, the tried and tested strategy for the British had almost without any exception been to use its navy. It was by far the best in the world. Judging by their relaxed behaviour in Kiel, Britain's naval commanders remained supremely confident they could defeat anything the Germans sent out to fight them, so long as it wasn't tug-of-war shooting or running. And events would prove them completely right and those historians who continue to talk about the naval race completely wrong. The small German fleet would spend the war almost entirely in harbour, completely unable to take on the British. The Royal Navy was able, with considerable ease, to blockade access to the German coast and eventually to starve the Germans into submission. So, even if Grey dragged Britain into a war, it didn't have to be the meat grinder of the trenches in Flanders. On the morning of Friday the 31st of July 1914, just five days before war broke out, the Cabinet met. It voted by a very large majority that Britain would not go to war. The Russians could make whatever threats they liked, but Britain would remain neutral. What then happened over the next five days could fill many podcast episodes, as it has already filled many books. It has recently been examined in enormous detail by historian Douglas Newton in his often angry study, The Darkest Days, The Truth Behind Britain's Rush to War, 1914. But you can sum it up in five words. Britain was tricked into war. What very few books tell you is that it came down in the end to four men. Just four men who pushed their country. You'll have to do that bit. What very few books tell you is that it came down in the end to four men who pushed their country and the world into tragedy. After the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, Britain had the option of backing Germany or remaining neutral. Either would probably have avoided a war ever breaking out. Instead, the British opted to go to war alongside the French and Russians. This catastrophic decision was foisted on the British by four men. 
there were the three friends who'd agreed a private plot to work together back in 1905. They referred to it amongst themselves as the Relugas Compact. They were Herbert Asquith, now Prime Minister, War Secretary Richard Haldane and Foreign Secretary Grey. Grey was actually staying at Haldane's house in London throughout this crisis. But now there were four of them, because since 1911 the Relugas Three had been joined by Winston Churchill, the politician in charge of the Navy and loudly impatient for action. Churchill later bragged in his memoirs that, quote, the supreme decisions to declare war on Germany or to send an army to France, quotes, were never taken at any cabinet. He was quite right. They were taken in defiance of cabinet and parliament by Churchill and the Relugas Three. Throughout these vital days, with the air full of terrible danger, Churchill brazenly ignored the cabinet and its anti-war majority. He undertook in cabinet not to spend more than £10,000 on preparation for the Navy. But in a rush of blood after dinner on the 29th of July 1914, he'd already hired a Cunard liner, apparently to transport troops to Belgium. And then he commandeered all the coal in South Wales for the Navy, at a cost of a million pounds. Lulu Harcourt, the colonial secretary, passed the Admiralty building at two the following morning and found every room lit up and men hard at work. Before the Cabinet's decision on the 31st of July 1914 on whether or not to remain neutral, it voted, you remember, to remain neutral, Churchill had ordered the fleet to sail from its south coast dockyards to its battle stations off of Scotland. Now, there was an established naval procedure for this kind of situation. It was to sail the long way round, west, past Ireland, away from prying spies, and to prevent any possible provocation or accident with other fleets. But at the very height of the crisis, at the end of July 1914, Churchill ordered the fleet east, through the Channel and past the French, Belgian, Dutch and German coasts. There was a very good chance it could have run into the German fleet on the way. It could have sparked a war there and then. The narrative of events over the first weekend of August 1914 becomes more and more hard to believe. Early on Saturday morning, the 1st of August, Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey spoke to the German ambassador, Prince Karl Lichnowsky. He'd already met him at least 14 times in the previous week. This time, Grey told the prince that he was trying to prevent a war, even if it meant abandoning the Russians. Well, if that was true, it was a major U-turn in Grey's policy. And if not, Grey was being completely dishonest. Grey and Lichnowsky discussed the possibility that both Britain and France would stay neutral if the Germans didn't invade Belgium or France. Without French support, the likelihood was that the Russians would back down and war would be avoided. Now, Lichnowsky was an Anglophile desperate to avoid a war. Many historians have dismissed the talks he had with Grey as nonsense, just wishful thinking on Lichnowsky's part. Surely there was no chance, they argue, that the French or the Germans would ever have agreed to any such deal. But this is to ignore what was going on in France or Germany. The historian Richard Wilkinson has argued cogently that there was in fact a very good chance that the French government would have agreed in August 1914 to remain neutral. Now it's true of course that the French and Russians had signed a military convention to fight together if the Germans attacked. But in August 1914 the government in Paris was besieged with strikes and political assassinations and it was close to breakdown. The very last thing it needed was a major war. 
Many years ago, historian Barbara Tuckerman further pointed out that the French Parliament had never in fact been informed of the terms of the Franco-Russian military alliance of 1892. There was a very good possibility that the French Parliament would now, in August 1914, refuse to ratify it. Anyway, you have to remember that the last time there had been a crisis in the Balkans, which was in 1908, the French had refused to support the Russians, and the Russians had backed down. So if the French and British stayed neutral, would the Germans not invade Belgium or France? When Prince Lichnowsky, the German ambassador, met Foreign Secretary Gray on Saturday the 1st of August 1914, he told him that he had the authority to make such a deal and that he would cable Berlin the good news straight away. As he left Gray, Lichnowsky believed war could be averted. For his part, Gray promised to inform the cabinet. But when the cabinet met later that morning, Gray did no such thing. Instead, he threatened to resign there and then if the cabinet insisted on staying neutral in a European conflict. Colonial Secretary Harcourt sent a scribbled note round the table. You can still find it among his papers in the Bodleian. We did. In the note, he said he would resign if they insisted on going to war. Or at least if they went to war without a lot more discussion. Now, back in 1911, ministers had been informed about detailed battle plans the British Army had for years been drawing up with the French to fight alongside each other against the Germans. The plans, which had first been discussed in 1905, nearly six years before, were in themselves a scandal, since there had been no cabinet authorisation to draw them up in the first place. Well, when the cabinet had finally heard about them in 1911, as we saw in a previous discussion, ministers made it quite clear that the plans in no way committed Britain to do anything. Well, now again, on that Saturday, the 1st of August 1914, the British cabinet made absolutely clear they would, under no circumstances, agree to sending the British army to France, whatever crazy scheme the British and French armies had been cooking up. If the worst came to the absolute worst, and there was a war, the most they might do was consider engaging the Royal Navy. On cue, Churchill, the politician who was in charge of the Navy, launched into what Harcourt's notes describe as a very violent speech, spluttering that he was going to mobilise the British fleet anyway, straight away, one step short of going to war. The Foreign Secretary, Grey, backed him up. Surprise, surprise. The rest of the Cabinet firmly told Churchill to calm down. He was certainly not to do anything yet. It was left to the War Secretary, Richard Haldane, to propose that Grey offer the German ambassador Lichnowsky a deal in which the British would stay neutral if France and Belgium were not invaded. They couldn't vouch for what the French might do. For a few hours after the Cabinet meeting, Grey seems to have wavered. Directly contrary to his posturing in Cabinet, he sent a message to Prince Lichnowsky saying Britain might stay neutral even if France were attacked. When they met again that afternoon for the 16th time, they discussed the possibility that even if the French didn't agree to stay neutral, the Germans and French might maintain some kind of armed standoff. In other words, mobilise but neither attack the other. It might be a way around any commitment the French might feel because of their military agreement with the Russians. At the very least, it would encourage the Russians and Austrians to look for a compromise over the Balkans. Lichnowsky cabled these new ideas to Berlin. Now, historians have disagreed endlessly about these talks between Gray and Lichnowsky. 
Thomas Ott argues persuasively that the initiative had in fact been taken behind the scenes by Gray's private secretary, William Tyrrell. William Tyrrell had been one of the most outspoken of the anti-Germans in the Foreign Office, but by 1914 he'd woken up. I mean, he'd come round to the view that a rapprochement with Germany would serve Britain's interests much better than siding with Russia. He and Ichnowski had been in constant touch for weeks. It seems to have been Tyrrell who persuaded Grey to broker a last-minute deal with the Germans, and Tyrrell who worked the details out with Prince Lichnowsky. But was Lichnowsky serious about his offer, or more particularly, were the diplomats and generals in Berlin serious about his offer? Well, many historians have tried to claim not. After all, at five o'clock that afternoon, Saturday the 1st of August 1914, the Kaiser sits down at his desk, made incidentally out of planks from Nelson's ship Victory, and signs the order for a general mobilisation of the German army. Effectively, he authorises his chief of general staff, Helmut von Moltke, to start sending troops towards Luxembourg and Belgium en route for France. But let's follow what happens next. Ten minutes after the Kaiser signs the order, the deciphered text of the first of three cables from Lichnowsky arrives. And it is, records an eyewitness, received with great but joyous surprise. Another witness says it's like a bomb. If Britain and France will stay neutral, Russia can be persuaded into backing down over the Serbian question, and the war the Kaiser and many Germans absolutely dread might be avoided altogether. Immediately, wrote one of the Kaiser's aides, quotes, the opinion was that this request could under no account be turned down. At 5.15, on the afternoon of the 1st of August 1914, with the British proposal to stay neutral, the war was off. On the afternoon of Saturday the 1st of August 1914, the British Foreign Secretary Edward Grey and the German Ambassador Prince Karl Lichnowsky had the outline of a deal to avert war. Britain, and hopefully, probably France, would remain neutral and the Germans would not invade Belgium or France. There was a very good chance that the Austrians and the Russians would then sort out their quarrel over the Balkans without going to war. When the proposal reached the Kaiser, he was overjoyed. What followed reveals how far the Germans were from the war-hungry imperialists of cliché. The Kaiser, as monarch, was formally in command of all the German forces. He turns to General von Moltke, chief of the army general staff, and says, now we simply march the entire army to the east. Without the threat of a French invasion in the west, the German army could be concentrated on the Russian border. It was then very likely that the Russians would come to terms. To everyone's amazement, an emotional von Moltke declares it's impossible. Seven-eighths of his army is already committed to advancing west. The plans have all been worked out over decades in minute detail, all those years of railway timetabling. Despite everything, he tells the Kaiser, France has to be attacked. Turning round and marching to Russia would just leave, quotes, a mass of orderless armed men without provisions. The plain fact is that this wasn't really true. A plan for deploying the whole German army east had been updated as recently as 1913, the previous year. So there's now a bit of row around the Kaiser's desk. Finally, the Kaiser agrees to hold the mobilisation where it is for the time being and wait for further clarification from London. Now there are desperate phone calls. 
The 16th German Division is about to leave Trier for the Belgian border. The Kaiser, however, is confident. There will now be no war, at the very least with France and Britain. He's so sure, he sends an elated telegram to his cousin Georgie, uh, that's King George V, at Buckingham Palace. At eight that evening, the Kaiser received a second message from London with more details from Lichnowsky. This time, the British were offering neutrality even if France declared war. These were the terms, you remember, that Gray, Lichnowsky and Gray's secretary William Tyrrell had worked out just that afternoon, even though Gray had said in Cabinet that he'd resign if Britain remained neutral. Now, with this second cable, the Kaiser was sure that the British, and in practice, therefore also the French, would stay out of the war. The German forces now had no need to go west. It was 8pm, 7pm London time. The Kaiser ordered champagne. The historian Thomas Ott argues that these offers reflected only William Tyrrell's view rather than the Foreign Secretary's. Actually, it doesn't matter. What the afternoon and evening of Saturday the 1st of August showed was that a deal was possible to avoid a terrible war. It would require, of course, more negotiation, especially with the French, but the basis was in place. And there was, in fact, a good chance, as we've seen, that the French would accept. The fact was that by 8 in the evening on Saturday the 1st of August, 7 o'clock London time, the war in Belgium and France was off. The German Chief of Staff, von Mocke, was distraught. He was one of those who'd long planned, and indeed rather wanted, a war. He believed in defeating Russia, and France if necessary, the sooner the better, before they became too strong and destroyed Germany once and for all. That evening, he slunk home, purple-faced, saying he was, quote, completely broken. A cello-playing melancholic, who spent his spare time in spiritualism, the occult and stereoscopic photography, he was so depressed that evening, he seems to have suffered a minor stroke. You couldn't have persuaded von Molke, as some historians have tried to argue, that the men around the German Kaiser were never really serious about halting the invasion of Belgium and France. The little clique that von Moltke had left with the Kaiser was, it's true, bickering and confused. But they had immediately seized the chance to avoid a war. Why wouldn't they? After all, even von Moltke had openly admitted that such a war was, despite all the years of planning, very likely to last years and might not even be winnable. That in itself suggests there never had been as many after the war long claimed, a sinister hidden German agenda, some unstoppable army momentum toward European hegemony. Nor had there been any German desire to occupy France or Britain, having defeated Russia or the other way round. The notion, anyway, doesn't bear scrutiny. You have to pull up another chair to the table and look at the question, not just from British post-war propaganda, but from German documents from the time. The German-Canadian historian Holger Herwig has shown that the Germans had in fact made no provision for a major war. They'd come up with no plan to deal with the iron blockade Britain's Royal Navy would easily and inevitably impose on her ports. They'd hoarded no food. In February 1914, the German Treasury had in fact rejected a proposal to buy the entire grain harvest of Argentina and store it in barges along the Rhine. Far from it! Late in July 1914, German grain was still being exported to Russia. The British cabinet was told that Germany was 30-40% to 40 short of the wheat it needed. The Germans had set aside no additional cash, even for initial mobilisation, 
and they certainly stockpiled only enough raw material for a few months and ammunition for a few opening battles. The German conscription schedule, as it stood on the eve of war, would quickly have removed half the workers from the shipyards and 61% of those from the Royal Prussian Armoury. It's very plain when you look at the German documents that nobody in Germany was planning for the kind of extended conflict that von Moltke and others were predicting. Over the previous weeks, hundreds of thousands of German workers had marched in Darmstadt, Freiburg, Hamburg, Saarbrücken and other towns demanding peace. You can't help coming to the conclusion that on that Saturday evening, 1st of August 1914, the Germans did not want world war and were not prepared for it. Yes, they wanted to face down the Russians in the Balkans, but nothing more. The door was wide open for Foreign Secretary Gray to achieve a peace by putting pressure on the French to stay out, just as they'd done in 1908. And such was the chaos of government in France, there was a strong possibility the French would have jumped at the chance. Peace was within everybody's grasp. But that same day, Saturday the 1st of August 1914, other extraordinary meetings had been going on in London, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. Mm-hmm.